Welcome to the October 30th episode of the Enjoying the Bible podcast. I'm Matt Ellis, and I'm the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida. Today's reading is Jeremiah 20 and 21 and 2 Timothy chapter 4, but we'll focus only on the New Testament in this podcast. I hope you're ready. Let's get started. Second Timothy chapter 4. Uh, this second letter that we have that Paul wrote to Timothy has is now coming to an end, and um, this chapter carries a lot of weight to it. There's a lot of, of really interesting things in this chapter, so let's just dig right in. Verse 1, he said, I solemnly charge you. So he didn't just charge him or essentially command him to do something. He solemnly commanded him. He added the, uh, the, uh, the extra word, the descriptor. He said, I solemnly charge you, but he's not finished. I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus. So that means that he has two witnesses that are observing what he is about to command Timothy. He's making it serious, but he's not finished. I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus, who is going to judge the living and the dead. So what he's saying is, is that uh, God in Christ is really Jesus is going to be the one who judges all of those who are saved and lost. Everyone is going to stand before him. He will be the righteous judge to assess what we did with our life. And so Paul says this, but he's not done yet. I solemnly charge you, Timothy, before God and Christ Jesus, who's going to judge the living and the dead and because of his appearing and his kingdom. So he's coming back and we are going to get to enjoy being in his kingdom forever. Timothy, do what I tell you to do because this is kingdom oriented. What I'm going to give you is a command in the presence of God and, and Jesus Christ. I'm going to give you a command that focuses on the kingdom. So do it. So what's this command? I mean, verse one was just a lot of stuff to put weight on what Paul is about to tell Timothy. What does he tell him? Verse two, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and teaching. So this is not a lot of different commands. It's one command. Preach the word. Okay? Preach the word. It means, the difference again, it seems to me, between preaching and teaching, and really there should be a little bit of both in both of them. But if we were to separate them, it seems to me that preaching calls for an immediate response. That's the thing that characterizes preaching. It tends to be a bit more animated, and it calls for an immediate response. Teaching, on the other hand, tends to not go for an immediate response, but it, it plays the long game. You know, I mean, there are some things where if you are in sin, let's just say that you're in sin, preaching calls you to stop it right now. And your response is yes or no to what God has said regarding the sin. Are you going to stop? Are you not going to stop? 
teaching says, okay, you know what? You are in sin. You need to stop it. But let's talk about this. Let's see what God's word has to say about this. Let's talk about why God wants you to stop it. Let's talk about why it is bad. Let's talk about the consequences if you were to continue doing this. Let's talk about, you know, teaching just goes into all of these other things. And so it helps us to understand the big picture. Preaching calls for an immediate decision. Teaching it just helps us to understand what we need to understand so that we will not do that. Pre- uh, Timothy is called to preach the word, get up and call people to decisions. And then he says, be ready in season and out of season. That means when you preach, whether it's in season or out season, and some would say, well, what does it mean? I will tell you, I'm not sure, and any honest pastor, any honest Bible scholar will tell you that they don't know exactly what it means in season and out of season. But what we all agree on is if you're in season, then you're not out of season. And if you're out of season, then you're not in season. And so when Paul says, be ready in season and out of season, he's saying, you be ready to preach the word all the time, whether you're in or out, all the time. Preach the word. And the preaching is to be characterized by correcting, rebuking, encouraging. Correct. Tell them what's wrong. Tell them where they are. Uh, tell them what to avoid. You know, tell them where it is that they need to, to fix things. Rebuke means to, okay, if they're going to continue in that sin, then you rebuke them. You tell them why it is so serious that what they are doing is wrong. You call them to repentance. Rebuke. Encourage. Man, that's build them up. Build up the people that are in your congregation. Tell them of who Christ is and how much he loves them and how the Holy Spirit has come to live within them to empower them. Tell them that no matter where they go, that God has promised in Christ to never leave them or forsake them. Tell them that no matter what happens, God has promised to work everything out for their good. And so this is what preaching is characterized by. Correction, rebuking, encouragement. And then he says, with great patience, and teaching. So even as he preaches, he is supposed to teach, right? With great patience, because why? People aren't always going to respond favorably to the message, so you demonstrate patience. You just keep telling them the truth, asking the Holy Spirit to do his job. Verse 3, for the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine. There's going to come a time when people are not going to want to hear what God's word has to say. They're not going to tolerate sound doctrine. Um, I'm telling you, I started a theology class um, here recently, oh, a few months ago, and I've been very impressed with how many have stuck it out to this point. You know, we're up to, I think, chapter 9, chapter 10, and taking about a chapter a week. Um, and I have been thoroughly impressed. I mean, right now we've got on average, on average, about 10 people showing up um, each week and somewhere in the neighborhood of about five or so that are viewing it online. So that's, that's great. That's fantastic. I'm also not saying anything bad about those who do not, you know, want to participate in that. People are busy, you know, they got a lot of stuff going on, but I'm just telling you that no matter what church you're at, if your pastor says that, hey, he wants, I want to dig deeper, let's get into God's Word, let's discover what the Word of God has to say about any number of big 
items that the Bible talks about. Let's talk about who God is. Let's talk about who Jesus is. Let's get dig into what salvation is and what all happens inside of you when you get saved. Let's talk about, you know, I mean, the, the big stuff. An overwhelming majority of the people in our churches just are not interested. Now, again, I'm not saying that you're super spiritual if you show up to a theology class and you're a pagan if you don't. I'm not saying that because it's not for everybody. A theology class is not. But what I'm saying is, is what Paul was saying, that there's going to come a time when people will not tolerate sound doctrine. I'm just saying... No matter what church you're in, yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, an, an, a large percentage of people that sit on our pews just want something encouraging. They want fluff. They don't want to dig deep. They don't. They don't want to dig into God's Word. And what happens as a result of it? Well, one of the things that happens as a result of it is uh, somebody can come along and, you know, I mean, there's tons of shysters out there right now tons of shysters out there right now. They've got radio programs. They've got television programs. There's a lot of good people on radio and on television, of course, but there's a lot that are out there that are shysters. Um, some of them want your money and they'll tell you anything uh, positive or encouraging or give you a promise of, you know, something, some blessing is going to be yours if, if you send them money to their ministry. Others are just pumping books out uh, or they're having a shadow writer write their books for them with their name on it and just trying to really uh, manipulate people and get them to believe things that are, are not really biblical. And people buy into it. They buy into it. In my ministry, I've had people buy into all sorts of crazy stuff that uh, you know some charismatics have put out, uh, crazy charismatics. Some Joel Osteen has put out, Rob Bell has put out. I mean, all sorts of things. Christians have said, oh, I've, this has really meant so much to me. And I'm thinking, are you kidding? That's not biblical. What sets them up for that? It's because they don't know the truth. They, they don't tolerate sound doctrine. They don't want to dig deep. They don't want to dig into their Bibles. They just want fluff. And so therefore, they are easy prey for anybody that comes along that panders, you know, that, that's panhandling something that actually seems like it can help them or encourage them or, or meet a need. You know, it's, it's, it's like, uh, you know, years ago when you would have uh, guys that would travel from community to community claiming that they had an elixir or they had a special remedy and all you had to do was buy this and, and ingest this, drink it, whatever else, and you would feel so much better it would get rid of any disease you had. And people would buy those things. They would buy that stuff and consume that, put that stuff in their body. Paul said there's a time that's going to come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine. They don't want to listen to truth, and they're going to be open to any number of other things because they're not digging into the truth. They're not going to tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. And some translations say, um, here's something new, and this was something along the lines of what the Greeks did. They loved to just sit and debate and listen to new sorts of things, 
um, and open-minded as you could possibly be and never really settling down on what was true. Some of them didn't. Paul was writing into a culture like that. He said, you know, the time's going to come when people that claim to be Christians aren't going to tolerate good, sound truth, and so they're going to hire preachers and teachers to come in and tell them what they want to hear. Maybe it's something new, but it's something they want to hear, and they're going to hire in those people. And so basically, Paul is saying, Timothy, you need to be aware of this, and you need to preach the truth, regardless of whether they want to take that medicine. You're the doctor. You know what's right. You have the remedy. It's the Bible, the gospel. And so you give them the remedy, and you call them to ingest it. You tell them that they are to take it in. They may not want that medicine, but it's good for them, and you give it to them. Verse 4, they will turn away from hearing the truth and will turn aside to myths, right? They're going to listen to anything. But as for you, verse 5, exercise self-control in everything, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Paul is telling Timothy, don't you give up. Don't you get disheartened. Don't you lose patience. They're not going to want to listen to it, but you be faithful and you teach them and tell them. And it could be that God's Holy Spirit works on their heart and gives them an appetite to dig into God's Word, not solely for the purpose of digging into God's Word, but so that they can develop a biblical mind, develop a mind that knows truth so that they can live rightly, right? You have to know the right things before you do the right things. Verse 6, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time for my departure is close. I mean, it's almost as if Paul can hear the axe being ground on the millstone down the hall as he's there in prison. He said, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. He's going back to the Old Testament offerings, and the drink offering was the wine that was poured over a burnt sacrifice, a sin offering. And as that was hot and smoldering, they would pour that wine over it, just like the last bit of blessing that would come over. And I would imagine the steam would rise up to heaven from there, rise up to the sky. Paul said, I'm like that. That last little bit, it's almost done. I'm being poured out as a drink offering. My life is almost over. Verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. Paul said, I did my job. Now, he would readily admit that he did not always live a sinless life. He was messed up. He was a sinner just like us. He struggled just like us. But he finished the job that God gave him to do. I fought the good fight. What did he fight for? He fought for truth. There were people that were fighting against him. There were people that were fighting to shut him up. There were people that were fighting against him to distort the truth. And so it was a constant fight. That's the fight of a minister in particular and Christians in general. That we dig into God's word and realize that our enemy hates God's word. He hates the gospel. And so it is, in essence, a fight to stand for the truth and to share the truth even when it's resisted. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Verse 8. There is reserved for me the crown of righteousness. 
Now, this isn't a golden crown like a king would wear. This is like a laurel. This is a, you know one of those crowns. If you've seen movies of Romans, uh, you know back in the first century or so, they had like the wreath, the, the 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 leafy crown that would go around their head. That's what it is. There is reserved for me the crown, the Stephanos. That's what that word is in Greece, the Stephanos of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. The crown of righteousness is the crown that says you are righteous, you have trusted, you are trusting in Jesus, you are righteous, you are saved, come on into heaven. Paul is not saying that living a righteous life gained him that crown of life. No, he was going to gain the crown of life. That's why he lived obediently to the Lord. And so he said, I fought the fight, I've kept the faith, hereby is laid up for me that crown of righteousness. I'm looking forward to not struggling with sin anymore, but being made perfectly righteous. Right now we're credited with Jesus' righteousness, but one day we will have that righteousness, unable to sin anymore. Verse 9, make every effort to come to me soon. Okay, so um, Paul is apparently feeling lonely, and even as we read the next few verses, I think he's struggling with loneliness. I think he's struggling with discouragement. Um, you think, oh, Paul was righteous. He never struggled with discouragement. Oh, yeah? Um, I, I forget where he wrote it. You could Google it or you know, look up in a Bible concordance. But there was an instance where Paul said, we despaired even of life. We despaired even of life. Paul knew discouragement. Paul knew discouragement. Um, he knew fear. He knew all of these things, and yet he relied upon the Lord's Holy Spirit to fight through and to do what he needed to do. But I think right now, he, I think he's he's lonely in this prison. He said, make every effort to come to me soon. And then listen to verse 10, because Demas has deserted me. Now, it's not that Demas said, uh, hey, Paul, I've got ministry to do. Uh, do I have, you know, are we in agreement that I can take off and I can go do that ministry? That's not what happened. Paul said he deserted me. He abandoned me. Demas has deserted me since he loved this present world and has gone to Thessalonica. Ooh. So not only did he desert Paul, but it says that he loved this present world. It's since he loved or because he loved this present world. And so apparently what's going on is Demas demonstrated that he did not want to suffer for Christ. Maybe that was it. Maybe he just outright rejected the truth of the gospel. Whatever it was, he said, I want what the world's got not what Jesus has. If this is what it means to follow Jesus, if this is what it means that I'm going to be persecuted and be in jail and I'm going to be with you, and no, mm -mm. Uh, Demas wasn't a fellow prisoner, but they were allowed to visit prisoners. And so it seems as if Demas was visiting and spending time with Paul, and then he just abandoned him, apparently wiping his hands clean, saying, I want what the world has to offer, not what 
following Jesus brings. So he abandoned him. Then he said at the end of verse 10, Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. So he said, you know, all three guys have left. Verse 11, only Luke is with me. I mean, if I was Luke, I would say, what am I, chopped liver? You know, you say only Luke is here. Yeah, but Luke is here. I'm here. Um, but he said, only Luke is with me. Then he says in verse 11, bring Mark, that's John Mark, who wrote the gospel of Mark. Bring Mark with you, for he is useful to me in the ministry. Now, that's interesting because when we read in the book of Acts, we realize that um, Mark was someone who, I believe it was on the first missionary journey, went with them, and then he abandoned them. Uh, you know, he went uh, to the island of Cyprus, or I, I forget where it is. You could check me on that. Uh, but he went, and then he just he just went back. He went back home, and we don't know why. We weren't told why, and but yet we realized that when it came time for the second missionary journey, Barnabas wanted to take Mark, and Paul said, "Fat chance, he's not going. He abandoned us before. I'm not taking a quitter with me." In essence, that's what he said. Scripture doesn't say that. That's the gist of what's going on. And so there was. It says there was a strong rift, so that Barnabas went on a missionary trip with Mark. And um, Paul took Silas. And so then, you know, of course, Paul and Silas, the Philippian jailer, we understand that story. That's when that happened, the second missionary journey. But it was a strong rift. I bet Mark felt like, oh my goodness, this, this man who was a terrorist and now is a Christian and who's larger than life is angry at me and he's rejected me and he, he, he will not forgive me for leaving. I wanted to have a second chance, but he was unwilling to do it. And so there was that strong rift. And yet, when we get to the very last chapter of the letter that Paul wrote, he said, bring Mark with you, for he's useful to me in the ministry. Apparently, things had been worked out. Mark wasn't going to hear of Paul's death, realizing that Paul never forgave him. No, that's not what happened in this letter. Even if Mark never made it to Rome to visit with Paul, this letter said that Paul valued Mark and saw him as useful to the ministry. Don't let bad blood continue to somebody's grave. Fix things while you still can. Verse 12, I have sent Tychicus to Ephesus. So maybe Tychicus was taking this letter to Timothy who was in Ephesus. I've sent Tychicus to Ephesus. Um, he said, when you come, Timothy, when you come, bring the cloak I left in Troas with Carpus. The cloak, uh, probably in this Roman prison, it was cold. And so he needed his cloak. They didn't provide that there. You had to provide for yourself or your family or friends had to provide for you. If you couldn't provide for yourself, you would get sick and die in prison, and they didn't care. So he said, please bring the cloak I left in Troas with Carpus, as well as the scrolls, especially the parchments. Okay, the scrolls, we believe, are the biblical books, the scriptures, right? The scriptures. Bring the scrolls, but then he says, especially the parchments. So what's that? The parchments. Um, Is that, uh, you know, what he is writing? Is that some other writings that he's reading? 
Uh, we're not really sure about this, but what we do know is that Paul, even as he was nearing death, wanted to read, wanted to study, wanted to learn. He wanted to read God's Word, and he wanted to read other things too. Boy, that's just a great lesson. If we're going to be a teacher, and I'm not talking about the office of preacher, as a Christian, we ought to be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. Anytime somebody comes up to any Christian, we ought to be able to say why we believe what we believe, what we believe, and biblically why we believe it. How do you do that? You've got to read. You've got to study. And we see the Apostle Paul nearing death, still wanting to read, still wanting to study. Verse 14, Alexander the coppersmith, he worked with copper. Alexander the coppersmith did great harm to me. The Lord will repay him according to his works. Watch out for him yourself because he strongly opposed our words. And so there was someone who Paul was warning Timothy about. And he mentioned in my name, he said that he hurt me really bad. And he said, on the day of judgment, the Lord's going to repay him. The Lord's going to take care of it. That's Romans 13, isn't it? Where we're told if our enemy is thirsty, give him something to drink. If he's hungry, give him something to eat. Why? Because the scripture says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So that's the basis for how it is that we as Christians can step back to not be a judge, to not hold on to bitterness and unforgiveness, but to let an injustice go. We're able to do that because we know God's going to make it right on the day of judgment. That's what Paul is saying. Alexander the coppersmith did great harm to me. The Lord will repay him according to his works. He's going to get what's coming to him. Verse 16, at my first defense... No one stood by me, but everyone deserted me. Everybody left when I stood up to defend myself. There were no witnesses. There were no people in the in the galleys to, to encourage me. Everybody deserted. Everybody ran. Was Paul holding on to that? Was he refusing to forgive? Listen to what it says. May it not be counted against them. This is a neat little principle, and it's this. That whenever a wrong is done against you, whenever a wrong is done against me, who is the one who is wrong? That's not a complicated question. Who's the one that's wronged? Well, it's us, clearly. If the wrong is done against us, we are the ones who are wronged. Okay? In a court of law, if you are the one that was wronged, if there's no crime against society, if it was just something against you, then you are asked do you want to press charges, right? Do you want to press charges? And if charges have been administered, if there are official charges against this perpetrator, then someone may wonder, maybe they wouldn't speak it out loud, but they would wonder, are you going to drop the charges? Now, in our court of, courts of law, we have that authority. If we are the ones who are wronged, we have the ability to press charges. And if we have previously pressed, we have the right to drop the charges. I believe that's what it's talking about here. Paul was not going to drop the charges against Alexander the coppersmith. He did him great harm. He said, the Lord's going to take care of it. I'm not dropping the charges. He hurt me. He offended me. He brought great harm to me, probably harm to the gospel. And so Paul said, I'm not going to drop the charges. I'm going to let Jesus deal with it. 
But when it comes to these people in verse 16 that at his first defense, no one stood by him, but everybody deserted him, it sounds like he's dropping the charges because he says, may it not be counted against them. He didn't say that about Alexander. He did say it about these people. May it not be counted against them. Lord, will you not count it against them? I do believe that as we read this, and in fact, this is not something strange and new. Jesus did this. Um, On the cross, Jesus looked down at the people and said, Lord, please don't hold this to their account. Please don't charge them with this offense. Stephen, when he was being stoned and was at Acts chapter 8, said, may it not be laid to their account. I think he's saying the same thing that that Paul is saying in 2 Timothy 4.16, may it not be counted against them. When someone wrongs you, you are the one who is wronged. I believe that God is looking at you to say, are you going to press charges? And if you're going to press charges, God's going to deal with it. If you're not going to press charges, if you choose to drop the charges, that is your prerogative. You can do that. You don't have to, but you can do that. And I believe that there's a very good chance that heaven's court will comply with that, that if we drop the charges, God will not do anything about it. It's possible. It's, it's just an interesting thought. Just I wanted to point that out in verse 16. Also, draw your attention to what Jesus said on the cross. Uh, may uh, they not be charged with this account. May they not be held accountable for this. Stephen also was saying the same thing as he was being stoned to death. Verse 17, but the Lord stood with me. <laughs> Yeah, that they deserted me, and I'm asking that they wouldn't be charged with it, but the Lord stood with me, verse 17, and strengthened me, so that I might fully preach the word, and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. And Paul's not holding on to bitterness. He's not holding on to anger. He said, you know what? The Lord was with me. I was there by myself, but I really wasn't by myself because the Lord was with me and he protected me. Verse 18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil work and will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I mean, he's just excited about how the Lord will rescue him from evil, from every evil work, and will get him safely to the heavenly kingdom. And by the way, at the end of verse 17, he said, so I was rescued from the lion's mouth. That's a very interesting statement. That's a very interesting statement because in the Colosseum, they loved to throw people for the entertainment of the crowd, the perverted entertainment of the crowd. They loved to throw people into the the big inner area and have hungry lions who are released into that area and then watch the lions maul those people. It's said that Christians experienced that as well, that Christians were put into those arenas and hungry lions were put in there and the lions mauled them. And yet, Paul said, I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Does that mean, is Paul saying that he was put into the arena with lions and like Daniel he, the Lord shut the mouths of the lions. Is that what he's saying? Or is he saying that he was so close to being put into the arena, but, uh, you know, the Lord worked the details out so that Paul was not put in the arena with those lions. So he saved him from the lions. We don't know, but we do know that uh, lions 
um, were used to maul people at that time for the entertainment of the perverted uh, delight of the crowd. Verse 19, greet Prisca and Aquila, Priscilla and Aquila, and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus has remained at Corinth. I left Trophimus sick at Miletus. And so there's uh, somebody, I mean, there's just people everywhere. Verse 21, make every effort to come before winter. Well, that makes sense, you know, because he asked him to bring his cloak, you know, his, his covering, something to cover himself with. He said, make every effort to come before it gets cold. I need that coat. Eubulus uh, greets you, as do Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and all the brothers and sisters. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you all. And with that, the letter ends. And from all that we know, in a very short period of time after he finished this letter, he was killed for the faith. He died boldly for the faith. He would not reject Jesus. And he knew that even as his life was stolen from him and he was a martyr for the faith, he knew that to be absent from the body, finish it, is to be present with the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that we live in a culture where we do not have the persecution, we don't have the injustice, we don't have the fear of being mauled by lions, we don't have many of those things that Paul just knew as commonplace. We thank you for that, and yet we also at the same time can't help but feel that not having, that, that, that being in a place of freedom has made us weak, that we're not strong like the Apostle Paul, that we're, that we're spiritually weak. Generally speaking, so many are spiritually weak because we don't pay anything for it. It doesn't cost us anything. So, Lord, I pray that even as we live in a place that's free to exercise our freedom, at least for the foreseeable future, Help us, Lord, to realize that in this freedom, it can make us weak. And so I pray, Lord, that we would see even our freedom as a temptation to fall into sin and apathy and all sorts of things. Lord, I pray that you would allow into our lives whatever you need to, to waken us up, to heighten our senses, and to cause us to realize that we do love you and we will obey you no matter what. Thank you for the testimony of Paul and for this wonderful letter that we were able to read and study as we went through 2 Timothy. And we do pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope today's episode has helped you to understand and enjoy God's Word so that you can apply it in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Enjoying the Bible podcast is a ministry of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida. Check us out at fbcpolkcity.com. See you next time.